not making quite as much noise as we were making a few weeks ago. But, uh, <laughs> you guys are still doing great, so that's great. Uh, Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give my wife a ransom for money. So, yeah, great thoughts. Well, Philippians chapter 3. <laughs> Philippians chapter 3, and uh, we will just going to read the first three verses in the chapter today, and then we'll uh, launch into our exposition and thoughts of the passage there. Philippians in chapter 3. The Apostle Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation, for we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. So my question for you as we start today, what's your state of mind today? What was, what was your state of mind last week, and what do you expect your state of mind to be in the week ahead? Uh, for most people, their state of mind is determined by their circumstances. Their sense of security is determined by their current situation in life. And here in modern America, and I'm guessing the same is true in, in many parts of the world, uh, we have become a very feeling-oriented society. Followers of Jesus have certainly been influenced by the world around us in this issue. Uh, we don't want to do anything that we don't feel like doing. Uh, we don't want to do loving deeds that we don't feel loving. We don't want to say loving words or act in loving ways if we don't feel like it. We don't want to live responsible Christian lives if we don't feel like being responsible. And this, this philosophy of life has gone even so far as to promote the idea that if you do something without feeling it, then somehow that makes you a fake. If you act responsibly even when you don't feel like it, then some people will say, will say you're, you're, you're disingenuous, you're not being real, you're, 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 you're just faking it. And the problem with all of that is that it makes emotion the proof of reality. It makes your feelings the number one motivator for your actions. And you know, movies and TV and video games, they produce all sorts of feelings in us. They, they mess with your emotions, that's kind, of their, that's kind of their plan, that's their design. They can give you highs and lows and anger and romance and adrenaline rushes and depression and tears of grief and shouts of joy all within a couple of hours, and it's all make-believe. None of it's real. It, it's just entertainment, supposedly. And, and, it, and it, it messes with your emotions all of the time. You see, our, our feelings do not create reality. Our imaginations do not create reality, and yet our society pushes this all of the time. You've got to feel it in order to do it or else you're a fake. That, that's nonsense. That's worldly wisdom. Actually, if you do the right thing, then you will feel the right way. And you can search the scriptures from beginning to end, and you will never find a passage of scripture that tells us to feel something before we do the right thing. Jesus never said, obey me if you feel like it. He never said, repent if you really want to. Love me if you can work up the feelings for it. Serve me if you're emotionally motivated to do it. 
Jesus never said anything like that. You'll never find it in the scripture because feelings are not biblical motivators. We do right, then we feel right. Uh, when we act responsibly as followers of Jesus Christ, we obey God's word, and then we feel good about it. We believe the truth, we act on it, then we feel good about it. The, the war always begins in the mind. And I want to show you a verse, we'll be back here in Philippians in just a second, but I want to show you a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'm sure it will be a familiar phrase, or a couple of them, a familiar phrase to some of you. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We don't really have time to develop the entire context of, these, of this short passage. But I'm going to read to you from verses 3, 4, and 5. Philippians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3, 4, and 5. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, that is, we're in our physical bodies, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but they are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And this is a great key phrase, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Paul does not say, take every feeling captive. Now, we use that phrase all the time. Get a grip on your emotions. Get a grip on your feelings. Try to control your feelings. That's not, that's not, not what Paul says to do. He says, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Uh, get, get a grip on your thinking, Paul says. Throw out everything that is not rooted in the Word of God and bring your mind into obedience to Christ. The war is in the mind, it's in your thinking. And so when Paul says, we're not fighting according to the flesh, you don't grab a baseball bat to go attack the devil. Uh, you, you, don't, you don't do it. It's not a fleshly battle. It, it, is, it, is a, it is a mental battle. It is an internal battle. And he said, our weapons are, are strong and mighty in God to pull down strongholds, to cast down arguments. You ever argue with yourself? Sure. You know, uh, should I do this? Should I didn't do this? Or why, why, why should I do this? Why did they do this? What if they, I mean, and on and on, we carry on little arguments. You know, I want to grab all those arguments and, and I want to pull them down and I want to bring them in captivity to the obedience of Christ. But that last phrase there, verse 5, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So, so when we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, we should not be asking ourselves, how do I feel about this? We do it all the time. I wonder how so-and-so feels about this. That's the wrong question. We should be asking, what do I believe about this? Because our beliefs will determine how we try to solve the problem. What we believe about God, what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about other people, that's going to determine what we do and how we face the challenges of life. And our, our feelings, our emotions are the least stable part of our being. That's why movies and video games and TV and all that can manipulate your emotions. It's the least stable part of our being. And, and feelings are never 
biblical motivators. Beliefs and convictions about God's truth are biblical motivators. And case in point, exactly what we've been talking about here in the book of Philippians, the Apostle Paul is under house arrest. We've talked about this in, in weeks past. He's chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, when he ate, when he slept, when he studied, when he bathed himself, when he changed his clothes, when he received guests, which he was able to do under house arrest, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, chained to a Roman guard. And yet, when he writes this letter, he's been in this circumstance for over a year, and yet the word joy appears six times in his letter, and the word rejoice appears ten times in this letter. And he begins this new paragraph that we just read with rejoice in the Lord. How could he do that? Because he wasn't motivated by his feelings. You see, he says, he says uh, re rejoice in the Lord. He's not saying that joy is an emotion necessarily. It, it's, a, it's a state of mind. It's a way of thinking. It will eventually affect our emotions, but joy is a state of mind. It, it, it's an inward sense of peace and contentment regardless of the outward circumstances. It, it's being satisfied with God. It's being satisfied in God. It's being content uh, with what God is doing with me regardless of my circumstances. And Paul has expressed in the first half of his letter, uh, first, first two chapters, that there's joy in fellowship and there's joy in ministry to others and, and there's joy when we're in unity with fellow followers of Jesus and there's even joy in making sacrifices for the cause of Christ. Uh, when he, and when he expresses that, He's not implying that we're jumping up and down with happy glee every day. He means that we're satisfied with God and that we have peace and contentment in the Lord regardless of the situation that we're in because we are trusting God. So we are content with God. Before we begin to look at more at our little three verses here, let me show you one more passage in Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah 26. I know some of you like to underline and highlight and do various things of that nature. If you are a Bible highlighter or underliner, if you haven't ever marked these verses, may I encourage you to do so. Absolutely fantastic passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 26. Isaiah, of course, has been writing in a time of national decline in Israel. Uh, Isaiah wrote this book about a hundred years before Nebuchadnezzar overran in Jerusalem. And yet he forecasted it. He told them that's what's going to happen. A hundred years before it happened, he told them what was going to happen. And, uh, and so forth. And so he, he's writing all of these judgment-type passages. He's also looking ahead to the future millennial kingdom. And you see, in fact, at the very first verse of chapter 26, it says, In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. Well, the in that day song about it is, is in the millennial kingdom. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, sets up his kingdom, and he said, they're going to sing this song in, in Jerusalem. But then look at verse 3 and 4, because those are, those are the verses. In verse 3 and verse 4, he says, You, meaning God, you will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for in Yah, that's a shortened form of Yahweh, for in Yah, the Lord, is everlasting strength. What a tremendous passage. 
How do you keep your heart anchored? Or how do you keep your heart peaceful? You anchor your mind in Him. You will keep Him in perfect peace whose mind is staying, meaning anchored, on you. Because He's trusting in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in Yah, the Lord is everlasting strength. And so we're back to our thought again. It's not that we ask ourselves, how do I feel about this? It's, what do I think about this? What do I believe about this? As, as we battle along in these troubles and trials of life and as all different sorts of things happen to us along the way, how do you keep your contentment? How do you continue to rejoice in the Lord? You anchor your mind on Him. You think your thoughts there. You'll, if God says, I will keep you in perfect peace when you anchor your mind on me because you're trusting in me. Because I have, ever, I have everlasting strength. So back now, okay, we'll be, I think we'll be in Philippians 3 for the rest of our time. <laughs> Unless I think of something else that's not in my notes that I had to turn to. Alright, so our question is then, why should there be joy in our relationship with Jesus. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord finally, my brethren. We always laugh when Paul writes finally, because he usually writes another couple chapters. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. He says, For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it's safe. Note Paul says to the Philippians, I have taught you these things before. He's, he's kind of doing a repeat. He said, not tedious for me to say this to you again. This isn't the first time Paul said this to them, rejoice in the Lord. But he, now he's, he's doing it again. He's kind of doing this repeat. And I assure you, all responsible teachers repeat things. All responsible parents repeat things. That's the only way our kids get it. I mean, you've told your kids things. And when you had kids at home, you've told your kids things a thousand times. And if you didn't really do it a thousand times, you told them you'd done it a thousand times, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, and that, that, that's a repeat. All responsible teachers repeat things uh, because that, that's the way people get it. That's the way our students get it. Paul says, it's not tedious for me to tell you this again, meaning it's not irritating, it's not frustrating to, to, to repeat this because he said, I'm trying to protect you from false teaching. He says, I am motivated to repeat these things to protect you from false teaching. Not tedious for me, but he said, it is safe for you. So here I am, he says, under house arrest in Rome, I want to remind you to rejoice in the Lord, to be content with the Lord, to be satisfied in God, because, and this is our first thought, because our relationship with Jesus is so much better than religious ceremonies. So look at this next verse, verse 2. Interesting verse, there's a lot behind it that we're going to unpack for you, I trust. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, Beware of the mutilation. Dogs were not pets in the ancient world. They were also generally not used as working animals. Now, dogs tended to be half-wild scavengers that roamed around in packs causing trouble. Jewish people sometimes referred to Gentiles as dogs because of their moral behavior in contrast to the Jews who were trying to, striving to live by the law of Moses. So here Paul's not referring to actual dogs. He's using the term as an expression for those who were trying to force the law of Moses on the first century followers of Jesus. And if you're somewhat familiar with the book of Acts, I know many of you are, you may remember that, that in the very beginning, the New Testament church was almost exclusively Jewish. 
When Peter preached his evangelistic sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 men came to Christ, they were all Jews. For the next several years, the gospel was spreading through the Jewish population in the Roman world, and there was actually great resistance to preaching the gospel to Gentiles. When God gave that, uh, that very pointed vision to the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, then the door began to open to Gentiles. If you're not familiar with that story, there was a Roman centurion named, named Cornelius, and, uh, and God, and he was a devout man, the scripture says, he feared God. And he was very friendly to the Jews, and, uh, and, and God, God divinely was going to bring the, he, he and his household into the kingdom. And so he brings a vision to Cornelius, and he says, there's a man named Peter living in a town called Joppa down the road here. And he said, I want you to send some of your men to go to get him to tell, to, he will come and tell you what you need to do. And so Cornelius takes one of his soldiers, of course he's a centurion, so he has, he has a hundred soldiers under his command. He takes one of his soldiers, he takes two of his servants, and he sends them. He tells them what this vision was, and he tells them, go down to Jaffa, find Peter, and tell him what this vision was. Because God said to do this, and he'll come and tell us what he needs to tell us. And so his, his uh, servant and the soldier head out, and they're heading down to Jaffa. In the meanwhile, while they are on the way, it gets to be about noon, Peter gets hungry, and, uh, and, and Peter, uh, again, has this vision from God. The scripture says he falls into a trance, and there are four angels bringing this big sheet down from heaven, holding the four corners, and it's filled with all these animals, and the angels say, Peter, arise and eat. You know, kill one of these animals and eat. Peter says, well, I can't do that. These are all unclean animals. I can't eat this stuff. And they, and they said, what God has called uh, clean, don't call common. And so they take the sheet out, the sheet comes back down again. Peter rises and eat. I can't eat this stuff, it's unclean. Peter, what God has called clean, don't call unclean. Sheet goes up in the sky, comes back down a third time. Peter, rise and eat. I can't eat this stuff, it's all unclean. Peter, don't call what God has called clean, don't call unclean. Then the sheet goes up into heaven, vision's over. And Peter's thinking about, boy, I wonder what in the world was that all about? Well, he's right in the text. You, you, you read it in Acts chapter 10. Peter's trying to figure out what the vision was about. And while he's trying to figure out what the vision was about, this knock comes to the door, and these guys are looking for Peter. And they tell him the vision of Cornelius. And Peter, ah, okay, 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 Lord, I'm slow, but I get it. He didn't say that, but anyway. We do that all the time. But I'm sure Peter's thinking, Okay, Lord, I, I get it. You just, yeah, you just, you want me to go preach to the Gentiles. These people have been calling unclean all my life. Now you want me to go tell them the gospel like I preached on the day of Pentecost. And so Peter does. You can read the rest of the story. Tremendous outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the house of Cornelius. Everybody in the household comes to Christ. Begins to open the door to the Gentiles. And, and you have this fantastic outpouring of the gospel among all of the Gentiles. In the very next chapter, chapter 11, the, the, in the, the, the city of Antioch of Syria, uh, there were direct evangelistic efforts to Gentiles. God blessed it abundantly. And in a very fascinating statement, Dr. Luke records right at the end of chapter 11, he says the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. And while the term Christian, follower of Christ, was, was quite likely by many people used as an insult, it is interesting that the name was first applied 
to the followers of Christ who crossed ethnic lines and began preaching to everybody. Just happened in, in chapter 10 and 11. Of course, you had Philip preaching to the Samaritans in chapter 8. But they were partly Jew, partly Gentile. But now here we're going to these Gentile dogs and we're preaching the gospel. And when people began to cross all those ethnic lines and say, we don't care what you look like, we don't care what color your skin is, we don't color, care what color your eyes are, we don't care what color your hair is, we don't care what ethnic background you are, we don't care what language you speak, we're going give, give to give the gospel to everybody. When that happened, they said, oh, man, these guys are like Christ. Remember, you know, the voice screamed out, each with sinners, you know, each with tax collectors, and blah, 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 blah. And, they were, and so the, the Lord Jesus Christ crossed all kinds of social and ethnic and economic lines. And when the church of Jesus Christ began doing that, they said, oh, these guys are like little Christs. But there was still an element within the, the larger Jewish community of, of thousands and thousands of Jewish people that there was still an element of, of believers in Christ who were Jewish who were demanding that everybody become Jewish. And even to the point that if you didn't submit to everything in the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. That's what they were preaching. Keeping the law of Moses was a prerequisite to being saved. And there are many people today, of course, who are doing exactly the same thing, just with different issues. you got to be baptized to be saved. you got to belong to a certain church to be saved. you got to speak in tongues to be saved. you got to do specific kinds of good works to be saved. You've got to participate in certain ceremonies in order to be righteous before God. And there's this big, long list today in certain groups of people saying you have to do this, 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 this in order to truly be forgiven. That they are adding to faith in Christ. Trusting Jesus Christ and what he did for them on the cross is not enough for many people today. Uh, that, that's the issue that Paul is addressing in this chapter. Because there were certain people there who just said, you cannot come to Christ unless you become Jewish. And of course, God gave the law to Moses 1,500 years before Christ came. And you did in the Old Testament. You had to be a part of the Hebrew religious system in order to have access to God. And the number one ceremony that identified a man as being a part of the Hebrew religious system was circumcision. That's an awkward subject for us, obviously, in the modern world. It seems strange and almost bizarre to many of us. We understand the potential health benefits of circumcision, but the religious implications are just really quite strange to us. But let me try to explain to you this way, because that's exactly what Paul's dealing with in, in these verses. God ordained that as a symbol, as a sign, a very important one, not just for physical benefit, but as a spiritual reminder. And the reminder is simply this, that nowhere is the human sin nature more demonstrated than in the producing of children. You say, why do you say that? Well, we know humans are sinners by what we say. We know that humans are sinners by what we do. We know that humans are sinners by our attitudes and thoughts, which are expressed in our actions. We can see all those outside sinful deeds. But we know that man, or I should say, how do we know that man is a sinner at the very root of his heart? We know that by what he creates. And producing children demonstrates the depth of our sinfulness because we are producing more sinners. I know when that little baby's born and you look at that cute little baby, it's hard to imagine that, but you just brought another sinner into the world. 
I used to hold my little granddaughter when she was, was, was first born, and of course, in typical grandfather fashion, I used to say, you know, she's the cutest little sinner I've ever met. <laughs> and, and she was. She's the cutest little... I, I've met a lot of cute little sinners over the years. Now, in, in all these years. But you know, what, what we are producing more sinners. You have five kids, you just produce five more sinners in this world. How wonderful. You have ten kids, you just produce ten more sinners in this world. And see, the, the, the male organ then is the point at which human sin is most demonstrated because we see the sin nature being passed on to the next generation. We create more sinners just like us. So God was giving Old Testament Israelites a symbol uh, that that outward part of man's child-producing organ would be removed to remind them that man needed to be cleansed of sin at the very deepest root of his being. That was the idea. We aren't bringing cute little angels into the world. We're bringing depraved little sinners into the world. Man needs to be cleansed of his sin through a spiritual surgery at the very root of his nature. And that very graphic symbol was chosen because it's at, it's at that point at which man produces more sinners. So man in his natural condition is a sinner. He produces more sinners and nothing but sinners. And every time they circumcised that little eight-day-old boy, which is when that was always done in the Old Testament, medical researchers say that's the day when there would be the least amount of bleeding. They were reminding themselves of the fact that man is a sinner and desperately in need of cleansing. It was an illustration of the sinfulness of man, and even the bleeding that occurred in circumcision symbolized the need for sacrifice to accomplish that cleansing. So there was even a picture of pain and sacrifice in the circumcision as well. And God was further. He was saying he didn't just want an outward sign or a symbol. He wanted an inward reality. God is after change in our hearts. You see, the outward signs are, are supposed to reflect an inward reality, that, that recognition of the darkness in our hearts and the cutting away of sin. Let me give you five references. We won't, we won't look them up. I'll say them slowly. I know some of you are writing furiously to keep up with, with, my, with, my, uh, with my references here. Leviticus 26, 40 and 41. So Leviticus 26, 40 and 41. You can read these later sometime. Deuteronomy 10, 16. And Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 10, 16. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Jeremiah chapter 4 and verse 4. Jeremiah 4, 4. And Ezekiel 44, 7. Ezekiel 44, 7. If you were to read those verses, you will see that God speaks about, says specifically, Specifically to the Jews, he says, I want you to have a circumcised heart. I want the sin cut away from your heart so that you can serve me with a, with, with a pure heart. So Jesus is saying, or God is saying, in that, that the outward sign is worthless without the inward reality. It wasn't just that he wanted this sign. He wanted this symbol to represent what was going on in their hearts. And, and that's why, you see, today in our modern day, all these extra things that people add to salvation are worthless. If there's no heart change, it's just empty religion. And if there is heart change through a relationship with Jesus, then there's no need for anything else. 
So these Judaizers come along. That's what Paul called them. That only occurs one time in the New Testament. It's in Galatians chapter 2. Paul calls them Judaizers. Who, who, were, who were saying that they were trying to require this ceremonial symbol in order for people to be a part of the New Testament church. They were saying, you are not truly saved if you aren't an official part of the Jewish religious system. And so Paul, in reminding the Philippians of this, he says, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. And he's using a play on words there when he says mutilation rather than circumcision. He says it's just an empty symbol. He said, so watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. He said, they're, 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 just, they're demanding something that, that's unnecessary, it's, it's, it's a waste. Because the message of the entire New Testament is that the gospel of Christ does not require anyone to be part of the Old Testament system. You may remember when Jesus died that the veil in the temple that hid the Holy of Holies from everyone but the high priest, that veil was ripped in two from top to bottom. At the moment that Jesus cried out, it is finished, and he died. The, the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom. No human did that. No human could do that. No human would be strong enough to do that. It would be impossible. God did that because Jesus was the final sacrifice the ultimate Lamb of God, the last sacrifice, He opened the way to God for anyone who will trust the Lord Jesus and what He did for us. When Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, it was finished. There's no other work to be done. As that grand old Philip P. Bliss hymn from the 1800s says, "'Tis the promise of God, full salvation to give unto Him who on Jesus His Son will believe." Hallelujah, tis done. I believe on the Son. I am saved by the blood of the crucified one. I don't know if you know that one or not. You probably do. Used to sing it all the time when I was a kid. Next verses say, Though the pathway be lonely and dangerous too, surely Jesus is able to carry me through. Many loved ones have I in yon heavenly throne. They are safe now in glory, and this is their song. There's a part in that chorus for you and for me, and the theme of our praises forever will be, Hallelujah, tis done, I believe on the Son, I am saved by the blood of the crucified one. You may know the verse in Titus chapter 3, Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. So Paul in these little verses, he's drawing a distinction between the true and the false between the real people of God and the false people of God, between those with religion and those with relationship. He says those with religion are their dogs, their evil workers, their mutilators, their scavengers roaming around in packs, their teachings are evil, and they are mutilating the gospel. Paul had absolutely no mercy for people who mutilated the gospel. And then in verse 3, he defines what a true follower of Jesus is. And notice he says... We are the circumcision. And that was another play on words of the Jewish people. That's what they called themselves. We are the circumcision. And we are the people of God. We are the people who belong to God. And Paul says, oh no, those guys are, they're, they're dogs and mutilators and evil workers. He said, we are the true people of God. This Jewish idiom for the people of God. And, and there are three ways that we are. We worship God in the spirit. 
We rejoice in Christ, and we have no confidence in the flesh. That's it. That's it. That's he said. That's what makes the true people of God. You're worshiping God in the Spirit. You are rejoicing in Christ, and you have no confidence in the flesh. Paul's saying, those guys have their marks, we have ours. You may say, well, how's it relevant to me? We don't really have Judaizers running around. Well, actually, we do, as I said a moment ago. People are saying all the time, you want to be right with God? you got to do this and this and this and this. you got to light this candle. you got to bow down here. you got to kneel there. you got to go through this ceremony. you got to memorize this prayer. you got to do this ritual. you got to buy this prayer. you got to join this organization, etc., etc. you got to work your way into the kingdom somehow. And Paul says, oh, no. If you are the true people of God, you're worshiping God in the Spirit, you are rejoicing in Christ for what He's done for you, and you have zero confidence in the flesh. I said this to you a number of times, I'm sure over these years I've been here, is that there are only two basic religions in the world. The religion of divine accomplishment, what God did, and the religion of human achievement, what I have to do to supplement what God did, because what God did isn't quite good enough. And, and, and you could take every single religious faith in the world and you could put them in those two categories. Yeah, we're, either, we're either serving divine accomplishment or we're serving human achievement, one or the other. And so many folks today are hoping that by their religious activities and their good works, God will be pleased with them and he will accept them. It's all the same stuff as first century Judaizers doing exactly the same thing with different issues. You know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we are saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. You see, God came down to us because we cannot go up to Him. So what's your state of mind today? Are you worshiping God in your spirit, rejoicing in Christ for what He has done for you? Or are you still trying to figure out how to earn your way to heaven? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our unsaved friends and relatives today. So many of them are trying to figure out how to get to heaven every way but trust in Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us to reveal and demonstrate that we are the true people of God because we are worshiping God in the Spirit. We are rejoicing in Christ for all that He's done. And we have no confidence in our flesh. There is nothing that we could ever do to be pleasing to you outside of trusting Jesus Christ. We cannot work our way to heaven. And we thank God that we don't have to try because we could never be good enough. So Lord, thank you for your grace to us. We pray you'd help us to be careful in our explanations of the gospel as we speak to people about the Lord. Lord, I pray you'd lift us up today and enable us to do all that you want us to do in me. In Jesus' name.